You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Jiang Shui Chin. Jiang is an educator, writer, speaker, and a recognized expert in Chinese education. He's currently principal at a Beijing based private high school and was previously a curriculum director at Shenzhen Middle School and deputy principal of Peking University High School. He's a judge for the Global Teacher Prize, the Global Student Prize, and the World's Best School Prize. Jang is a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Global Education Innovation Initiative and a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. He has authored two books that share his extensive work in promoting the teaching of creativity in the Chinese public school system, Creative China and Schools for the Soul. He's spoken at education conferences around the world, has been interviewed by CNN and the BBC, and has written for the Wall Street Journal and the Chronicle of Higher Education. I'm feeling very privileged to have you here. Welcome, Jang. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So let's start the conversation. And I guess I'd like to start with that concept that you're really an expert in, in the Chinese context, which is creativity. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you define that in the work that you do. So what is creativity? What isn't it? How do we know it when we see it? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I specialize in the teaching of creativity here in China uh, to Chinese students. And I have a very specific and uh, precise definition for creativity. Um, for me, creativity is to help students understand the scientific process and use it in order to problem solve. That's, that's what I mean by creativity. So it's the solving of problems, essentially? Using the scientific process, yeah. The scientific process. So, right. you know, some people might see creativity as artistic or thinking laterally and outside the box. Your work's really about science, technologies, and problem solving. So how does that enable creativity, do you think? I've been in China for the past 20 years. I've been thinking very deeply about how to make the society more creative. And so what I've realized is that the major difference separating uh, China from the West is that China never underwent the scientific revolution. Those 100 years when the West built a system of processes and protocols in order to discover truth and to solve problems. So China doesn't have concepts that are well embedded into Western culture, concepts such as truth, progress, and individuality. And what I've, what I've discovered is that unless you have these concepts in place, you can't really teach creativity. And so I'll give you a concrete example of this. If you go inside a Chinese classroom, you'll find that it's actually not creative. It's actually anti-creative, meaning that there are certain cultural habits of uh, mind and work that inhibit creativity. The first is the lack of autonomy and agency among students. Um, so teachers are, are in complete control and they demand obedience and conformity from students. That's the first problem. Second problem is that there isn't a focus on processes, just results, but very, very quick results. So an example of this is to learn English. Kids here just memorize English words. They don't actually go for reading. They don't, they don't do writing. They don't debate. They don't communicate. Uh, so there's a lack of focus on processes. Uh, and the third problem is that mistakes are frowned upon here in China. Now, in the West, we understand that making mistakes, failing, it's really um, the best way in order to learn and to grow. But here in China, it's really frowned upon. And my argument is that we have these cultural 
habits of mind and work in place because China never went through the culture, never went through the scientific revolution. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to replicate the essence um, and the spirit of the scientific revolution inside the classroom. So I, I agree with you that artistic, musical, athletic creativity are also very important. But I think that here in China, the primary concern is to learn science in order to solve, solve problems rationally. And so part of that, it sounds like, is that the scientific process also potentially teaches you to take risks and to be okay with making mistakes or failing, trying again. So it's partly an openness to failure, but also those things that you talked about, obedience, conformity, sort of the opposite of those sort of agency and confidence to try things oneself. Is that sort of what you're thinking? Sure. I mean, um, the father of science, Galileo, right? I mean, his argument was that we don't have to listen to the Catholic Church. We don't have to rely on authority. We can, through experimentation, through observation, through logic, uh, through the collection of evidence, discover truth for ourselves. And so there's a heavy emphasis on anti-authority, heavy emphasis on individuality, and a heavy emphasis on curiosity. And this very much works against um, Chinese tr traditional culture and thinking. And so what are the kinds of challenges that you come up against? Because what you're talking about is that China needs this kind of creativity and this scientific process in order for its citizens to, to kind of end up as problem solvers in the world. But then you're saying that some of the underlying values of that are things that are maybe culturally embedded in China as well, like respecting authority and being obedient and results being really important. So are there particular challenges that teachers and schools and school leaders, people in, in schools are coming up against as they're trying to bring in this kind of an approach? Creativity is very much front upon here in China. And, and again, as you mentioned, it's very much cultural. Um, it's culturally embedded, this conservatism and this very narrow-minded way of seeing the world. To use a metaphor, I mean, a lot of people see China as this landmass, right? It's the third largest country in the world. But really, culturally and intellectually, it's an ocean. So people here take pride in the continuity of 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, the stability, the balance, the harmony. What this means is that this country is uniquely set up for, for anti-change, for anti-creativity. Um, so maybe for these 30, 40 years, there's been economic, tremendous economic progress. And people in the West are astounded by what's happening in China. You see these massive skyscrapers. You see these massive uh, highways. Um, you think that China is prospering, booming. But culturally, China hasn't really changed at all. And um, maybe in the grand scheme of things, we'll see these past 30 or 40 years as basically just a tempest in the grand scheme of the grand arc of Chinese history. Um, so China has been through much change and tumult in these past thousands of years, but China has stayed consistent. So I think that uh, Chinese secrets are implied in that, uh, the continuity, the stability, the harmony of, of Chinese culture. But at the same time, um, people in the West may see this as a very deep-rooted conservatism that inhibits uh, progress and change. And so there's probably a need there to continue to honour tradition, culture, values and so on while still pushing for progress in education and in the way that schooling and teaching and thinking and teaching students to think happens. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's a great point. So a very concrete example is the role of teachers here in uh, China. Now, there have been surveys done um, that said that teachers are extremely well-respected profession here in China. Do teachers are uh, as well-respected as doctors. And that's a great thing. I think that educators all, all around the world deserve respect and status. But here in China, I think we take it a bit too far in that the authority of teachers, you cannot question 
the authority of, um, of, of teachers. And so students aren't actually allowed to, allow, allowed to ask questions not, because that might embarrass the teacher. The teacher might lose face. And the teacher will intentionally um, lower expectations. He will ask really silly questions, simple questions for students. Because if students fail to answer the question, he might lose face. So um, here in China, the, the role of teachers, I mean, it's very prestigious, but um, unfortunately, saving face is much more paramount than getting students to think deeply about the world and getting, getting them to um, express individuality. And how do teachers feel then about changing the culture in their own classrooms? If they're a very prestigious profession who's highly respected and treated really well by parents and the community and the classroom, where is the teacher's motivation to change their practice and change the way in which they encourage students to maybe behave differently in a classroom? I think for the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a consistent demand among the general public, um, among economists, among policymakers, to promote uh, creativity in the Chinese school system. And these past 30 or 40 years, we've seen two major sources of opposition. Uh, the first is from teachers because they don't they don't want to lose their status and prestige in society. They're very comfortable. They're very happy with the way things are. So they are a consistent source of opposition towards any sort of curriculum reform here in China. The second are parents, and the reason why is that parents see education as a zero sum game. It's almost like a prisoner's dilemma, in that only a few students can win out, and they. They fear that if there's any curriculum changes, then all students might lose out. And so because of this widespread opposition from both teachers and parents, little has been actually done in promoting creativity here in China. There's been a lot of talk, but if you actually go inside the classroom, it's no different from the way that teachers uh, were teaching 30, 40 years ago. And so how does that opposition to this influence the work that you do kind of at a systems and consultant level, but also now, you know, in a school environment where you're leading teachers, but then also the work that you do with other schools and so on? How, how do you address some of those concerns that people have or how might you start to, to move that forward? So I was unaware of these of this massive cultural opposition when I first started in education 20 years ago in China. And I myself have evolved greatly these past 20 years. I mean, I first started as a high school teacher and that was fine because I was working with kids and I was having an immense impact on, on my students. They were getting into good universities. Their English was, was great. So um, I found that work very rewarding. And then I got promoted to become a school leader in charge of developing new programs. And that's where I ran into a lot of problems because as I mentioned, any change will um, ruffle a lot of feathers. And so um, just because I was proposing new ideas, a lot of teachers, a lot of parents were upset about what I was doing. And so that, that was a tremendous learning experience for me. And um, because it was such a failure, because there was so much opposition and protest against what I was doing, I've modified a lot of my techniques and strategies over the years. So um, I switched to teacher training because I, I, because I felt that if you really want to implement change, you have to change the mindset and the habits of teachers. You also have to empower teachers to be agents of change, right? So if teachers discover that um, creativity can actually, the teaching of creativity can actually help increase my status and prestige in society, then they will be advocates for it. So I've been trying that for the past five years and um, it's not been going well just, just because even if you do in fact help change teachers, teachers themselves will run into this massive social opposition embedded in, in this culture. So now I've returned to uh, 
school leadership, but working at a principal level so that I have complete control over the curriculum. I am better at advocating on behalf of students. So my strategy going forward is to basically collect concrete evidence that change is possible inside the classroom and that change is beneficial for students. And that's how you convince parents. If you can convince parents, then you can slowly convince teachers. And so, you know, for the past few weeks, I've been teaching students directly, collecting a lot of evidence, meaning that we'll run a lot, a lot of tests. Um, I invite teachers and, and the parents to come observe my, my class. But what they see is that if you change your teaching in subtle manners, students um, thrive. So an example of this is English teaching, right? So right now I'm teaching English. And again, uh, the problem in China is that they believe that the best way to teach uh, English is to get students to memorize word lists. And I have always been opposed to that. And so I've been slowly trying to get kids to uh, read books and to act out certain scenes in the book to write literary analysis essays. And only in two weeks, um, we've seen students, um, their minds just blossom and open. And, and so we arranged for a two-hour uh, presentation where students become advocates of this sort of education in front of their parents. And parents, you know, when uh, they've been see, because I mean, they live with their kids, they, th they themselves see how much happier, how much more confident, how much more engaged are when kids become agents of their own learning. So you're communicating with parents, you're giving teachers permission to try these things out, you're being an exemplar in your own classroom, and then you're kind of allowing the students to be advocates for their own learning. Would you say that these students that you're teaching at the moment, that their experience in the classroom with you is quite different to the experience in the classroom that they've had previously? Absolutely. So, I mean, f first of all, I think you summarize it in a really uh, nice, nice, eloquent way. Um, I, I think the most important thing, uh, just to be clear, is that the principal has to be the role model. I mean, the principal has to be the agent of change. Uh, the principal has to be the person inside the classroom, in the trenches, doing the work so that others can see and emulate. I think here in China, the biggest problem is that school leaders talk the right talk. They have the great ideas, but it's just talk. And unless parents and teachers see for themselves concrete change implemented by the, by the principal, people will, will just sit back and, and, and be passive. So, so I think it's really important that principals be agents of change. Um, so to answer your question, what sort of changes have, have happened among students? Students traditionally, they, as I said in class, they're passive learners. So maybe teachers will make them learn certain words and they'll sit and they'll memorize a lot of words and they become very accustomed to it and it becomes almost pleasurable to them because they become very, very good at it. One thing that I need to do in the beginning is to basically coax them out of their addiction to memorization and move them towards a new way of thinking in the classroom, which is, you know, get them to imagine new ideas and to commu communicate and express these ideas, even at the possibility of failure, even at the possibility of losing face. And so what I need to do in the classroom is create a democratic, a very open, uh, and a very tolerant, caring environment in which I, the teacher, am always encouraging students to speak out and am and, and very non-judgmental uh, when students respond, while giving very concrete and specific feedback on how students can improve. That's actually very difficult to do, to be both non-judgmental, at the same time be able to provide very precise feedback on how students can improve. But if you're able to do that, then what happens is that kids feel empowered to speak out. There's no risk of failure, and they want to be agents of, of their own learning. 
They want to speak out. They, they want to share their, their ideas. And so the classroom becomes a much more vibrant, a much more tolerant, and, and a much more happy um, learning environment. And as the teacher, are you still feeling that sense of respect from students and so on that hasn't gone away because of this environment of trust and openness and non-judgment that you're creating? I mean, the reality is that if you can prove to students you're a good teacher, they respect you even more, right? I mean, I think all teachers understand this. If you're a really good mm. teacher, students love you. And it doesn't really matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter how you teach. But if students know they're learning, they respect you as a teacher. So um, as long as you are able to, to demonstrate professional competence, I think everyone respects you, right? Parents, your colleagues, students respect you. And, and I think that what, what students have figured out is that the best teachers are the most confident teachers. And the most confident teachers will encourage students to speak out and to ask questions. Uh, because that's the, the, a demonstration of, of professional co confidence. As the principal, you are sort of setting yourself up there as the lead teacher, the lead learner, and you doing that by example is helping your students to learn in this way, but also help giving teachers permission by saying, hey, I'm, I will back you here because this is what I'm doing in my own classroom and this is what can happen. You can still be respected and they, here are the benefits of teaching in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the most important thing as a school leader is to make an open door policy. Right, so you, the school leader, you need to um, be the role model. You you need to demonstrate courage. Um, you need to make mistakes, and you need to own up your mistakes. At the same time, you need to have your door open so that when teachers are trying this and they are running into problems, they feel they have a resource to go to, and there's no friction. Uh, there's no sort of hierarchy. There's no, no no sort of distance between the school leader and and the teachers. And as you've been doing this work recently, have you had any particularly surprising or interesting feedback, something from a teacher or parent or student that is unexpected, something that you didn't think you would hear, whether that's good or bad? Well, I mean, I mean what's really surprised me, the feedback from parents is that, okay, like I knew this way of teaching where in the classroom, you get kids to read text, difficult text, and you ask them difficult questions. Their English ability would go way up. But what the feedback I'm, I'm getting from parents that really surprised me, that really shocked me is that kids go home and they're happier. You know, they go home and they want to learn more. So that's what, that's what shocked me because I thought at first that kids would feel this is so much hard work and this is so stressful because they're being asked to do such difficult texts and their English uh, ability isn't really up to snuff. But what's really surprised me is that once you, once you start to challenge kids, they become more confident, they become more happy, and they become much more engaged regardless of their English ability, which, which to me is, is shocking. And so there's also almost a well-being piece there where you're doing it because of the learning and the thinking that you want them to do, and that is happening, and their, the engagement is there, but actually that they are more happy as learners and as people if they are engaged in this thinking and in this work. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that I didn't really do in the early age, the stage of my career was think about a, a student's well-being, his psychological profile, how he is developing as, as an individual, especially in the crucial teenage years, right, from 14 to, to 18. I, I discounted that, mainly because I was like a robot in school. I mean, I was a very good student. Um, I just did my work. I, I was not very emotional. And as I became a, I became a father, as I, I became a more experienced teacher, I, I prioritize the well-being uh, and safety of students. So um, the way I teach, I mean, I'm always staring at people's faces and eyes. 
to to study for discomfort. I'm I'm okay with discomfort. I'm okay with, with with that because it shows that students are thinking. But I don't want anxiety in the classroom. I don't want stress. I I think that's kind of productive, especially when kids are 12, 13. I remember I'm teaching sixth graders. They're 12, they're 13. So it's a very fragile, a very sensitive age. So I want to do scaffolding. I mean, I, I want to support them, but I don't want to be another source of stress because they have so much stress in their lives anyway. So um, that's really, I think, the most fundamental change uh, in, in, in my worldview as an educator these past 20 years. Before, I, I only prioritized academic outcomes regardless of the cost. Now I prioritize well-being, and I, I see well-being as key to strong academic outcomes. Mm. They're definitely interrelated, absolutely impossible to extricate one from the other, I think, in lots of ways. And the pandemic has been, I think, something that's also really shone a light on wellbeing as well as equity issues. And China's had a pretty hard experience of the pandemic and a lot of remote learning. Has any of your thinking changed due to the experience of the pandemic in schools and education? Yeah. So, I mean, the pandemic these past two years have really clarified for me how broken our school system is. And so I think that we need to really focus on the ideas of meta-learning and collaboration more. And right now we're, we're still stuck in a chalk and talk model where teachers deliver information. And this is really obvious in China. I think China had the least disruption during the pandemic. Even when there was lockdown, teachers were still able to deliver um, lectures online. And the reason why is is that the sort of style of learning that happened offline and online in China w- w- was consistent, right? I mean, mm. offline uh, at school, teachers would, would just sit in, in a podium and talk for 45 minutes. And then when they went offline, the same thing happened. So there was no disruption at all. And students didn't really learn that much um, in school, and they learned even less, you, you know, when 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 the, when the lockdowns happen. So that really solidified for me and clarified me the, the importance of meta learning. You know, we need to teach students to learn for themselves, and so a lot of my teaching is really in helping students better understand meta learning. How do you go about? better developing a memory, a stronger memory? How do you start to be able to construct your own learning goals and developing your own learning strategies? So in my class, we focus a lot on reading strategies, on how to quickly identify the plot of the book, how to read psychological profile and identify changes in the plot, changes in character. And so the idea is that you know, I want to teach students in a way that maybe a year or two years from now, they don't even need a teacher. That's my goal as a teacher, to sort of um, make myself redundant in their lives. So not just teaching them the content, but actually teaching them how they learn and how they can help themselves to be learners and to continue to improve. Yeah, and that's why students enjoy learning, because it's empowering for them. It's, it, it, it's like you're, you're, you're giving them a new set of tools uh, a new pair of eyes in, in which to see the see the world and to see themselves and to see the text. And that's why they enjoy it so much because they, they feel that, wow, this is liberating. This is empowering. And it's liberating, right? Because once if you're able to teach meta-learning properly, they feel so much more empowered about themselves. So it's interesting that you've talked about the sort of anti-creative pro-authority system that sort of still exists with a lot of consistency of chalk and talk kind of teaching, which has its goals, I guess, in results and positive academic outcomes for students. 
But would you say, I'm trying to think about how to summarise what seems to be your goal here, which is around that empowerment of students as learners and as thinkers, would you say that's your kind of end goal or is there another way to put that? I think that's a great way of, of summarising it. But another, another way of understanding what I'm trying to do is, even though I'm teaching a classroom, I'm still very much engaged in field research, meaning that I'm not delusional. I don't think that I myself will change the Chinese school system. You know, Chinese school system is, you know, tens of millions of kids, millions of teachers. It's been around, around for a very, very, very long time. I'm not going to change how this thing operates uh, in a year or two, right? What I'm doing is I'm conducting field research so I, I can better understand about how to devise a blueprint so that future generations can come along and use this blueprint in order to better promote education reform and change in China. Another way of understanding what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think of education more, more, more of a science than as an art. And so the analogy I like to use is that if you look at medicine about 20 years ago, it very much was an art. It was basically doctors did what they want, and a lot was intuition, a lot was feel, a lot was just local practice. And then about 20 years ago, you had certain individuals who came in who were scientists, and they brought the idea of science, scientific process, in, into medicine, and they modernized medicine. So that medicine today, it's really a rigorous set of systems and protocols that allow doctors to provide individualized feedback so that all patients get better, regardless of um, income, regardless of education, regardless of demographics. So that's my ambition, really. I want to be able to write this blueprint down and better inspire future generations of educators, not just here in China, but around the world. One, one thing I am wondering, though, is that China, you're saying, you know, has, a, has some way to go in terms of creativity and so on, but when we look at PISA results... China does really, really well, and many countries look to those PISA results, so the OECD's Program for International Student Assessment that measures 15-year-olds' proficiency in reading, maths, and science. Lots of countries look to that, and Australia's results are declining. Uh, we're often told to look to some of the provinces of China like Beijing, Shanghai, Jiangsu, and Zhejiang, which really outperform other countries and provinces around the world. Are there things that other countries can learn from China. You talked even in your approach just then that you were talking about and with education as a science, there's a, a value there about consistency and about knowing what works and therefore applying that. Is there something that other countries can learn from that big system that is Chinese education? Sure. I think there are a lot of things that uh, the world can learn from China. I think the first thing, uh, the most important thing is that there's tremendous respect for education here in China. There's this belief among all Chinese that through hard work, through education, people's lives can change for the better. There's this incredible optimism about education here in China. And that's why people here in China are so obsessed with education. If you go to restaurants, all these restaurants are packed with tables of parents and all they talk about are the kids' schools. School rankings here in, in China are obsessed over as much as uh, sports rankings uh, in Australia or, or, or the United States. So there's this massive obsession about education here in China. And I think that can be learned from um, the importance of education is widely believed here in China. That's the first thing. Second thing is that there's this deep, deep respect uh, for teaching as profession. And what that means is that teachers, teachers are expected to grow all the time. I think a third of all uh, work uh, for teachers is in professional development. 
So they spend a third of their working hours learning. And that could, be, that could mean learning from other teachers, going into other people's classrooms, observing, taking notes, and giving feedback. It could mean going to citywide sponsored uh, teacher developing sessions. That could mean simply something simply as attending lectures on your own, getting credits at a community college. So a third of, of teachers' working hours is in learning. And I think that's a great thing. I, I think that's something that all school systems can learn from. The third thing that the world can learn from, from Chinese schools is that teachers, even in primary school, are expected to do research. They're expected to do uh, dissertations. They're expected to do presentations for other other teachers. So that, that's why there's so much respect for, for teaching because here in China, primary school teachers are expected to do research and scholarship at the level of university professors. I, I think that's something that's wonderful. I, I think that all countries can learn from this and understand that teaching, it's not just a job, but it's actually an intellectual pursuit. And it requires a lifetime of constant study and reflection. That is definitely something that my colleagues in Australia would resonate with. I think teachers at the moment are not necessarily feeling like a respected profession and there's shortages and there's high attrition rates in both teaching and school leadership across sectors and across districts, I suppose you'd call them. So that respect for education and for schooling as well as respect for teachers and the teaching profession and the teachers themselves being proud of what it is that they're doing and given that time and space that you're talking about for their learning. So I'm interested when you say that a third of their working hours are in professional learning, are the other two thirds teaching or is that still some planning and preparation and assessment time? So how much of a Chinese teacher's timetable day would be taken up with teaching? A third would be teaching so that Chinese teachers would teach like, I think, 18 hours um, a week. And then the other third is would be in planning and in market homework. Now, remember that uh, Chinese teachers, teachers actually teach very large classrooms. They teach 50 students or more. So there's a lot of homework to grade and there's a lot of um, lesson planning to, to do. But uh, the great thing about, Ch about Chinese te teachers is that they collaborate very closely together so that they actually share lesson plans. Um, and that reduces a lot of the workload. And, and I, I think that that's another thing, actually, that uh, the world can learn from in, in China. Teaching is considered a collaborative activity. You know, if a teacher's not doing well in the classroom, don't blame the teacher, blame, blame, blame the school culture, blame the leadership, because they're not actively encouraging collaboration among teachers. And what might that collaboration look like in a Chinese school when teachers are working really closely? Is it just sharing of resources? Is it meetings? Is it yeah. cross-marking work? Like, how does that support work? Well, there are different ways this unfolds in, in Chinese schools. The first is mentoring, right? So older teachers will mentor younger teachers. They will spend a lot of time together. Second thing is in collaborative lesson planning. So the entire department will sit down together and maybe develop the entire lesson plan for the semester for all classes. Then there's peer-to-peer -peer learning. So teachers will go into each, each other's classrooms and make observations. And then at the end of the classroom, they'll have this very frank, open discussion about how the teacher can improve. And I've been in a lot of these sessions. And what's incredible is that the teacher who's been observed and who has been critiqued, that the teacher's not offended. The teacher is doesn't feel that his or her autonomy is, has been infringed upon. In fact, the teacher is very welcoming and very receptive to a lot of this critique and feedback because the teacher knows that this critique and feedback is just to help him or her grow as a teacher. So I, I think that's also a great thing about Chinese schools. 
There's an interesting tension there between what you talked about earlier with students not necessarily being encouraged to take risks, to deal with failure, to collaborate a lot, but then the teaching profession, it sounds like they do um, see feedback as an opportunity to grow, collaborate highly together. So the actual education system or a school environment does reflect some of those things that we might want for our students as well as for our teachers. Right. So a lot of the issue is that um, the culture of teaching the professional teaching in China is great, but the end goal, the assessment system is problematic because all anyone cares about in China are, are the test scores, right? So this is all in the name of getting higher test scores. And so a lot of pressure is, is on the students to perform. And that I think is very problematic. Uh, this teaching culture, it's great, but I, I think that the, um, the end goals are very problematic. Um, I think that China needs to, needs to move to a more holistic uh, assessment system uh, to encourage more individuality and, and creativity here. And-, and what might that look like? So, you know, school leadership role at the moment as school principal and obviously test scores are always a really important data set for any school leader and for parents and for students. What other kinds of measures are you either bringing in or thinking of applying in your school environment that might be measures of the kind of learning that you want to see in the students in your school? I place a huge emphasis on growth mindset so I don't really care about the results. I care about um, the value system. I want students to challenge themselves. I want students to be able to engage in constant self-reflection. I want them to be aware of their limitations and have the courage to overcome their limitations. That's what I'm, I'm interested in instilling in my uh, students. And that's why I don't really prioritize the best students. I mean, here in China, the best students are, are, are giving preferential treatment, but in my experience, I think the very best students, mean, meaning the best academic students, are much more problematic than the worst students. Because the worst students, I mean, they have no pretensions. I mean, they have no arrogance. They know their limitations. They're bad students. And so whatever advice you give them, they're open to it. For the very best students, they basically develop a very um, kind of productive set of values. So, for example, they tend to focus on easy tasks, which gives them easy rewards uh, and praise. They uh, tend to do things too quickly, and they do not like uh, to be challenged. They do not like to step outside the comfort zone. And so I often have problems dealing with the best students. I don't have any problems with the worst students because, quite honestly, um, they, they're very open-minded. But the very best students here in China can be very close-minded, can be very narrow-minded, can be very stubborn, and um, can be very um, anti-creative. And in some ways gaming the system or working the system for those high outcomes, those testing outcomes, rather than wanting to be a learner? The Chinese school system, it's addictive. It's as addictive as playing video games, right? This With this test system in place, there are students, as you say, who are able to game the system. They develop techniques that allow them to, in a very short amount, amount of time, memorize core information and then regurgitate this information on tests. They're very good at that. But, but because they're so good at that, they've become addicted to that. So that when you ask them to do something else, for example, can you, rather than fill out these multiple choice uh, answers, can you give me a long form answer to a question without a very standardized answer? And they can't do that. They freak out, they stress out, and they break down emotionally. Uh, I've seen students cry because I've asked a hard question, and they're, they're just not used to being asked hard questions before. Um, so it's a very problematic system. 
Mm. I mean, one of the things that I'm teaching my year 12 literature students this year is that, uh, you know, they can get a B with that sort of memorization and regurgitation. What have people previously said about this text? But that actually the way that the marking system works in the course that we're doing to get an A, they really need to show personal engagement with the text and that they have thought about it themselves, not just that they are repeating all of the things that have been said about it previously, but that they've got some kind of personal connection, obviously high-level analysis and so on, but that it needs to be more than repeating what they've learned. Yeah, so evidence-based reasoning is a huge problem here in China. Kids never learn it. They don't even learn it at university. And that's why even the best students here in China, when they go overseas, they struggle immediately. Um, They never really learn the importance and value of evidence-based reasoning. It's difficult too, because I know some of a similar kind of thing, those students that study the hardest and the most are often the ones who feel the least flexible in a test situation where they have to come up with something that might be slightly new or something they haven't thought of previously that's something that's not pre-prepared because they want to use all those things that they've worked so hard to remember. That's true and the other thing I've noticed about the best students is they lack empathy. It's very hard for them to see uh, problems from another perspective from someone else's perspective and they're used to only interacting with other students who are like them. Uh, They really don't like diversity and difference. I'm just remembering that earlier in the conversation, you said that in your own schooling, you felt like you were a robot. You were going through the motions of schooling. What was it that inspired you then to come into schooling and education as a space if your experience of it was quite automated? My personal background is that I was born into a poor family here in China in 1976. And we went over to Canada, Toronto, when I was six, seven years old. And I had, for the first 10 years of schooling, a very traumatic experience. I couldn't speak English. Uh, I stuttered all the time. My name was weird. My family was poor, so uh, my father cut my hair. I wore secondhand clothes for my cousins. So it was very easy for kids to tease me. And I was always a very sensitive child. So um, the stress, the chronic stress, the trauma really inhibited my learning. And I was a terrible student through primary school and through junior high school. And in high school, students, teachers took notice of me. Um, they thought that I gave some interesting answers in class. They, thought, they, saw, they found a spark in my eyes and they started to encourage me. And I started to read more books. I started to ex- take school more seriously. And so it was this, really ex- ex- it was, it was this experience of education. I see education as both empowering and liberating uh, because I experienced the power and liberation of education myself that inspired me to become an educator. I went to Yale College and studied English literature there uh, with the intention of being a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, because I wanted to be rich. Uh, my family was poor. And, but before I, wanted to go, I, went, I went to law school, I wanted to come to China for a couple of years teaching English because I, I was always interested in learning and I fell in love with education. Because for me, teaching, I mean, it, it's intellectually very stimulating. In the classroom, even though I'm teaching sixth graders, I might be teaching students who barely speak English, but it's really stimulating for me to think about how to communicate complex ideas in a compelling manner to kids who have very limited experiences. I found that very intellectually stimulating. Uh, So it's, it's always been a passion of mine. Wow, that's an incredible story of your why you've ended up as such a passionate advocate in the education space and an educator. We're coming to the end of our time together, and so I'm going to move us to the last five questions, the enlightening round of this podcast. Sure. And I wonder if you might have already answered the first one, but I will ask you anyway. There might be something else. The first one is, what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? Um, I'm a science fiction writer. I've been um, writing, I've been working on a nine-part, a nine-book science fiction uh, saga 
uh, these past few years. I, I finished three books. I have six more to go. Uh, those three books exhausted me. Um, they're very stressful to write. And I'm thinking that I might want my children to finish the cycle for me. So I, I'm strategizing on how to best convince my children, manipulate them into finishing my cycle for me. So that's something that no one knows wow. about me. Yeah. And are they, they're not published yet then? They're not published. I, I'm, I'm still working on it. It's, it's just a passion of mine. I don't think it'll make any money. Must be an absolute labor of love, I'm sure. So three novels in a nine-part series so far. That's right. Amazing. Wow. And what about something that is currently on your desk? Yeah, so on my desk is Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. It's something that I teach sixth grade Chinese. I love the book. Uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend Judy Bloom for any teachers who teach Chinese students, just because um, she's a fantastic writer. She's able to, to write very deep ideas in very simple language. And a lot of themes that she writes about, um, adolescence, family, is something that really resonates with Chinese students. Great. Who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? The most important person in my life, of course, is, is my wife. She completes me. We have two children together. We're hoping to have four all together. You'll need the four to finish that, your um, books. That's why we're having so many children, <laughs> because we have so many books to, to, to write. But um, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was a very good student. And um, because I was such a very good student, I saw the world in a very narrow way. I'm, I'm not a very emotional person. I'm a very rational person. Um, she's more of a human being than I am. And so she's able to tell me how ordinary people think. And that's really um, helped me in the work I, 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 I do. Well, high praise for your wife there. What about one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? These past two weeks, I've been teaching critical, critical reading skills, reading strategy to my students. And next week, I'll be teaching them writing, specifically evidence-based um, reasoning. So I've never taught this course before, but the idea is for me to propose topics to them and then they go online, they do interviews, they do surveys, collect information, and then turn that into a coherent and compelling essay. So I've never taught this course before, but I'm really looking forward to it. Fantastic. I, I find that teaching is the thing that is often my favorite thing to do in my job, in my, in my day. And finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would like to leave listeners with? I am a beneficiary of what we call the meritocracy, right? I worked hard. My IQ was very high. I did well on tests. So I got a full scholarship to Yale College. And in my education career, I've become very skeptical about the meritocracy. I think that if we are to develop further as a species, if the world has become better, then we need to think of ways to make our school system um, much more democratic and much more accessible. So uh, my dream is that every student is able to access an elite education, not just the very best students. So, so that's something that I think we all have to work towards. So challenging us to design a more equitable system for everybody. Right. Well, Jang, thank you so much for joining me on the Edu Salon. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. It's been a pleasure, Bea. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.